our scripture reading and sermon text for this Lord's Day. Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46. God's holy, inspired, and infallible word. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on His left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Are you ready? These are words that are often heard around my house as we prepare to leave for some destination. Are you ready? Are you ready? If you are into combat sports, maybe you think, are you ready to rumble? Are you ready? Words I heard a lot in my younger years. Are you ready for some football on Monday nights? But this morning we were thinking about a question that Bob Dylan asked in one of his songs. Are you ready? Are you ready to meet Jesus? That is really the key question here that we have been and are today asking ourselves. And I hope it's a question you've asked yourself, not just as you're sitting here, but as you drive home, as you think throughout the week, am I ready? 
Am I ready to meet Jesus? One of the key questions that we will then ask ourselves as we reflect upon this all-important question is what does it mean to be ready? How then do I make myself ready? There are different ways that people have tried to answer this question. How do I make myself ready? Am I ready? Some have thought that they prepare for the end of the world by storing up as many goods as they possibly can store up. All sorts of food, all sorts of water, especially lots of ammunition, right? Am I ready? Well, how's my gun supply looking? Maybe I'll even build a bunker for myself one day. Others, believing that this world is coming to an end, make themselves ready by doing the exact opposite. They sell everything. And for whatever reason, they buy an RV and drive across the country. That's how they're making themselves ready. But notice, as we've been thinking about this question over these past chapters in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus does not tell us anything about either storing up a lot of things, especially ammunition, or selling everything to become a nomad. This is not within his purview. How then do we become ready? Well, today... He tells us to make ourselves ready by loving and by serving our church family. For as we love our brothers and sisters, we are also loving our King. Our text opens by pointing to the future. Christ here is speaking. He points to the future when He will return with His angels. His second coming will bring then the fullness of the kingdom. And this has been the main topic of this fifth and final discourse in Matthew's Gospel. Recall that Jesus today is enthroned in heaven, but on that last day, His throne will become like a chariot. He will return. His throne will come to earth it will be seen with all the company of the angelic host bringing this world order to an end. During His first coming, He was humble before us. But at His second, He will be arrayed in glory. This is how our text opens in verse 31. Then in verses 32 and 33, Jesus echoes various Old Testament prophecies but he places himself at the center of these prophecies. For at the end, the nations will indeed be gathered as the prophets predicted, but they will be gathered at the foot of his throne. And he, Jesus, will exercise judgment, dividing the wicked and the righteous. This is likened to how a shepherd in the ancient world would divide sheep from goats. Now, scholars don't really know in what circumstances the shepherds would do that in the ancient world. Some hypothesize that perhaps they would divide the sheep from the goats when there was a cold night ahead, as we've just experienced. The sheep, very wooly, they can be left out in a cold uh, night. The goats, not so wooly, they need to be brought indoors or something like that. Others think that perhaps this is referring to when the sheep and goats would be divided to shear the sheep. 
It's not exactly clear. But obviously, Jesus is anticipating that his audience would understand that this was a common practice for shepherds. And so this is what the king would do. It's likened to how a shepherd would divide sheep and goats. He places the sheep at his right hand, a place of glory and of honor, and the goats are then placed at his left. Then, in verses 34 to 40, we read a dialogue between the king and his sheep, verses 34 through 40. The king pronounces his royal gifts, bestowing a reward upon the sheep. A reward that had been prepared for them from the very beginning of creation. It's very interesting, isn't it? It's been prepared for them. It's been destined for them. It's been purposed for them from eternity itself. And it is nothing less than the eternal kingdom of glory than on that last day, that kingdom prepared for the elect will finally be given to them. To those for whom it had always been prepared. The king then explains why the sheep receive this royal endowment. And this really is the key to our text today. The sheep loved the king in this life. The key to our text today, the thing that sets the sheep apart, the reason that the sheep were ready and not the goats, they loved the king in this life. Notice what the king says. I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. The sheep are characterized by their love for their king. Now, Jesus is not at all here suggesting anything like meriting your salvation by way of loving Jesus. He's teaching us how we make ourselves ready for him. Keep the context in mind. Or if you don't, you'll go down the path to a works-based salvation. That's not at all what's going on. Remember, we just talked about the virgins that made themselves ready versus those who did not. This is the same kind of context, the same kind of thought. Who's looking out for the king? Who's loving the king? Right? After all, those who trust in Jesus will love him. They will listen to his word. They will make themselves ready for him. That is the thing that sets the sheep apart. They love their king. Their love does not make him their king. He was already their king. They loved him, even imperfectly. But the sheep then asked a question, didn't they? How did we love you? They're confused because they knew that their king was not with them. So they asked the question, how was it that we did that? How did we love you? You weren't here on earth with you. 
You were ascended to heaven, in other words. We didn't see you. We didn't touch you. We didn't feel like we fed you. How did we do all these things for you? And so Jesus tells them, and He instructs you today. The church represents Jesus on earth. Even though His physical body is in heaven, that does not mean that He is entirely absent. The church is His ecclesial body. The church is His body on earth. Christ has joined Himself to the church by that mystical union that the Holy Spirit forms. And so when we love His brothers, we love Jesus. The church represents Jesus on earth. As you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. This is not about general alleviation of the general poor, as good as that is, surely. This is about loving Christ's brethren, the church, loving the king's brothers. Beloved, we must love the brethren. We'll come back to that in just a moment. We move on in our text to verses 41 through 46. This now contains the final dialogue, whereas previously Jesus was speaking with his sheep. Now the king speaks to the goats. And we noticed here that this is the great contrast. The king speaks to the goats and he banishes them from his royal domain. They are sent away from him, banished to everlasting punishments. Instead of spending eternity with the king, they spend it with the one whom they followed in this life, the devil and his angels. Of course, this does not mean that those who are goats consciously followed the devil. There are very few people who wake up in this world in the morning and say, All right, devil, what shall we do today? But what characterized the goats was a failure to regard the king and a failure to regard his kingdom people in this life. And this is the essence of what the devil and his angels are up to in this world. What did the devil do from the very beginning? He opposed Christ's brethren. He went with temptation to Adam and to woman. And what then do we see in that first gospel promise as God addressed the serpents that he would put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring serpents and her offspring? A fight between the serpents and the church of Jesus Christ would continue it would ensue until Messiah would have one day the victory. The devil and his angels set themselves against the king and against his people. This characterizes them and it characterizes then the goats who 
are in league with them, spiritually speaking. And so then it is fitting that the goats find themselves with the devil and his angels for eternity. Banished with the devil and his angels in the life to come. They were aligned with the devil in this world, so it is fitting and appropriate that they spend eternity together. So our third point of exposition, the devil and his goats. But now, beloved, let's think about this for ourselves. I want to begin by addressing your mind, maybe better, your mindset. How you look upon Christians. As one scholar has recently noted, our culture underwent a great transition in the past decade when it adopted a very negative view of Christianity, traditional Christianity. Now, 50 years ago, our culture viewed Christianity as a positive thing. Even if people weren't themselves Christians, they viewed the Christian faith as a good thing. Something that would benefit people at the very least, even if it's not true, right? They still thought it was a pretty positive thing. Then there became a view of Christianity that was eh, neutral, maybe not necessarily positive or negative. Now it has become a decidedly negative view of Christianity, that our faith is detrimental to society. And so I mention this because we must be especially careful that this does not seep into our thinking, our mindsets. You see, what happens now is that you can earn brownie points with the culture if you set yourself against fellow Christians. Especially Christians who are, quote-unquote, more conservative or more fundamentalist than you are. If you degrade them, if you outwardly speak against them, you can gain brownie points with the culture and you might think you're going to get a seat at the bargaining table. That's what people are doing. You see these uh, articles run in the New York Times where supposedly biblical Christians are denigrating fellow Christians, the fundamentalist ones, that will ultimately include us, I'm sure, because they then think that they're getting status with the New York Times readership or whoever it is. I don't have anybody in particular in mind right now, but just giving you an example of what happens. Sure, I believe in Jesus, but I'm not like them. Even if you don't write for the New York Times, you can easily be put in that position, given an opportunity to join with mainstream culture, to marginalize somebody who's not where you are, exactly, to slam them, and in so doing, you fail to honor fellow believers. That does not help the cause of Jesus Christ. Now, if mainstream culture continues to become more and more negative toward traditional Christianity, then aligning ourselves with fellow Christians will become even more costly 
we will end up further on the margins. But recall, this is how Jesus envisioned his kingdom citizens in this age. Recall the Beatitudes. Upon whom did Christ pronounce his covenant blessings? They would be uh, found upon those who are poor in spirits, those who mourn, those who are meek, those who are merciful, those pure in hearts, those who are peacemakers, those who are persecuted, those who are reviled. While such people are cursed by the world, they are blessed by God in Christ. Whom will you regard? Not only should we highly regard our brethren because they are blessed by Christ, but we should also regard them because they are representatives of Jesus Christ. They, not the world, are united to him by faith. They, not the world, are being conformed to his image. The king calls them brothers, not the world. They have the inheritance. They are co-heirs with us of all the everlasting blessings. Where what do the goats receive? A share with the devil and his angels. Whom will you regard? Even if it is at great cost for yourself, whom will you regard? We make ourselves ready, our first point of application, by highly regarding Christ slash Christians. Our first point of application. Second, we love the brethren. Whereas I wanted in our first point to address our mindsets, I now want to focus in on our actions. Because we must not only think good thoughts and have good feels inside ourselves, we want to act with active love toward our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. For after all, we want to act with active love toward Christ himself. And where do we find Christ? In the Christian. Jesus here instructs us in this practical calling by implication. A practical calling of love. Giving food. Giving drink. Welcoming. Clothing. Visiting. Far more than good thoughts, we must, must then serve one another. This calling to love one another does not, again, lead to earthly advancements. In fact, it's the, quite the opposite. If you feed the impoverished brother or sister, you're not climbing the corporate ladder. You're not advancing your bottom line. If you're opening your home to a Christian who needs a place to eat or sleep, you understand that that person cannot reciprocate. Even more, how could caring for a brother or sister who is sick, diseased, or imprisoned come back to help you in an earthly way? It cannot. Love for the brothers is costly. It is a commitment. 
It goes against the grain of a world that opposes Christ and His church. But remember, beloved, this is where you find Jesus. Hebrews 13 echoes this. In Hebrews 13, verse 12 and following, we read, we read these words. Jesus suffered outside the camp in order to sanctify the people through His own blood. Therefore, let us go to Him outside the camp and bear the reproach He endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Hebrews points out that Jesus was rejected by the earthly city. He was marginalized. And that is where we find Him and where we then find one another. On the margins. Outside the mainstream. This world is doomed to destruction, but Jesus is on the margins. Jesus is outside the mainstream. We find Him there. We find one another there. We find life there. This love of the brethren should be especially understood practically of our calling toward our own local church. This is the primary sphere of Christian service and activity. Not the only sphere, but our primary sphere. For these are the brothers and sisters to whom you have covenanted yourself to whom you've made promises. Promising to love one another. Promising to care for one another. This is costly. It requires your time. It requires your money. It requires your service. It doesn't lead to earthly advancements. You will end up associating with people who are not like you who will likely from time to time get on your nerves. You will miss out as you spend time serving here on cultural endeavors that you might enjoy more, that might advance you more. But Christ tells us that loving our brothers and sisters is more than worth it. Recall, as you love your church family, you are also loving Christ who is found in them. Make yourself ready. Not only do we regard our brothers and sisters, but we love the brethren. Now our third point of application. Deacons, lead us. We celebrated and witnessed last week a man being ordained to the diaconates. For those who were here, I trust that this elevated your view of that sacred office. I find that normally the pastoral office is well regarded. So too the office of elder. But the office of deacon oftentimes suffers. Normally that's because people are just confused about it. If you go to certain traditions, you find... The deacon as more of a liturgical assistant. 
helping with the liturgy. In other contexts, you find that deacons or sort of like a super servant to whom we outsource all of our service. But as we saw last week, deacons are called to lead us in service. As men are set apart to this sacred office, we are saying, lead us, guide us, show us how to serve and love the brethren. Our liturgical form for last week quoted this text of Scripture. It said this, The office of deacon is based upon the love and concern of Christ for his own. This concern is so great that he considers what is done to one of the least of his brothers as done to him. In this way, our Lord identifies the needy as his representatives in our expression of sympathy and benevolent service on earth. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink and so forth. Matthew 25 is quoted in the deacon ordination because they are called to lead us in the direction of love and service of one another. And so I want to remind the deacons of this important fact. The very heart of your calling is to catalyze service for the brothers and sisters in this church. You are not called to do everything. You are not called to merely a task-oriented service. Oftentimes, guys can be more task-oriented than people-oriented. We are called to tasks, but all of those tasks lead to real people, our brothers and our sisters. You have been ordained, you have been set apart to lead this whole congregation to love and serve one another. So no matter the tasks given to you, Let's remember, this is about people. Because if your tasks are not leading toward love of the brethren, then the tasks mean nothing, like 1 Corinthians 13 tells us. Love is the thing that abides. Love is the thing that lasts forever. Love is the thing here that Christ is about. May we love one another. Congregation, we have asked them to lead us. And they have authority to lead us. So if the deacons approach you and speak to you, they're not coming to you as if they had no authority. But they have been consecrated to lead, to guide, to speak, and to bring you toward a more fulsome service of the Lord and of His church. They have marching orders, and so do we. 
Now, deacons, this also means you're called to lead your pastors to serve better. The elders to serve better. All of us to serve better. You're helping us make ourselves ready for the return of Jesus Christ. As we conclude now and draw this to a close, we come now to the end of our fifth and our final discourse in Matthew's Gospel. I want to remind you of the different aspects of making ourselves ready for Christ's return. This is very brief. We were already instructed to look for the signs of Christ's coming. Not those signs that characterize the entirety of this age, but the climactic signs that immediately precede his arrival. The climactic Antichrist and his climactic tribulation. His cosmic in scope. These are like signs of the arrival of spring when the fig tree puts forth its leaves. We are called then to remain on on alert like the master of the house that anticipates a thief in the night. The spirit of alertness or watchfulness is expressed as we commit ourselves to serving Christ while he is absent. His departure, remember, is not an opportunity to serve ourselves, but we give ourselves over to him, always seeing ourselves as servants of the master, even though he is not with us. Most importantly, here, this service is expressed by loving our fellow Christians. For when we love them, By the power of the Spirit, we are loving our King who is physically absent. We are loving Him through His ecclesial body. May the Holy Spirit make us ready, day after day, week after week, making us ready for the return of Christ. May He, in our hearts, cultivate love and service of our brethren. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.